0: evangelism and missions. tends to be the only time you really hear about it is uh, if someone's teaching you how to do evangelism or uh, t- trying to get you to go on a missions trip. But it's got um, a lot more beautiful things than just that. Those things are helpful, but it's, it's bigger and broader than that. And so that's what we're going to talk about. If you will stand up, we will, without further ado, read the passage. This is the word of the Lord. As while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These were the guards who were there at the tomb, saw the angel say, he is not here. He has been resurrected. And they they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this very day. Now now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, And of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray before we take a look at this passage. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a joy it is to know that within the Trinity there is not any disagreement, any reluctance uh, to rescue your people to come to people like us and to begin to restore us to wholeness and newness of life, uh, to push restart, in a sense, in our hearts and our lives. And so we thank you for that. It is uh, with joy that we read this passage, to know that you are never a reluctant Redeemer, ever. But it is your desire uh, to go to the furthest corners and dark places and out-of-the-way places on the earth to gather your people to yourself. So even tonight, would you persuade us? Even tonight, would you let us see you again as you are? Because when we see you that way, we will inescapably want you more. Uh, Would you please do that in your mercy? We ask this all in your name. Amen. So did you catch uh, some of the elements of that passage that are kind of unbelievable, stretch the imagination when I was reading it? If you're at all like me, you've probably found yourself saying something like this. If I could have been there... If I could have been there to see and touch the resurrected Jesus, if I could have seen the concern on his face for me, or his love on his face for me, then I would be able to believe more easily, or my faith would be stronger if I was there, if I could have seen it. But didn't we just read a passage where there was a ton of people who were there, and that's not the way it penned out for them, right? They saw him. The guards saw Jesus resurrected. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the angel of the Lord. Speaking to the women, they saw all of that, but it didn't affect them at all, me, The chief priests, the elders, they heard about it. They went into their retirement years in Jerusalem for the next probably 30 or 40 years, hearing stories of thousands of followers of Jesus who all of a sudden, out of the blue, start saying the Messiah was risen. The one who said he was the king is the king. And guess what? Getting out of your grave a dead person and then living and being resurrected was just as weird back then as it is now. It's not like they're mystical, weird, weak-minded people who believed easy things. It was just as weird then, which is, why it was, uh, which is why you got a lot of the reactions you did out of some of those people. But even today, we have this idea of the verification principle, maybe you've heard, or maybe seeing is believing. If I could have been there, I would have believed. But this kind of blows that out of the water in some ways, right? Because, here's why. That verification principle that all of us have grown up in, seeing is believing. In order to accept something is true, I have to see it, touch it, taste it, feel it. It's got to be proven empirically to me. That's great, except for some fatal flaws. We don't have time to talk about them all tonight, but this is the one that matters for this passage. That principle never takes into account your heart, or my heart. It takes into account your eyes, and what they're able to see, and it takes into account your brain, but not your heart. Because what happens when you see something... That's true, but you don't want it to be true. What happens when something is blatantly true right before your eyes, but you're deluded? You're in denial. You have a blind spot. You don't want it to be true because if it's true, it means rearranging everything. Going back to the drawing board. Seeing that the path you're on might be a dead end. That's very inconvenient. And the verification principle doesn't take that into account. Uh, and so this passage kind of pushes back against us because here's people who saw it and they didn't, a lot of them didn't believe. Some of them did. Uh, but some of the, the first encounters of Jesus' resurrection seems like it was a blip on their radar. And then you have some other groups of folks. You've got some disciples, and they're kind of, they're worshiping Jesus. They see him for who he is at this point. But Matthew puts a little parenthesis. Some of them doubt it, right, in verse 17. Uh, and then you've got all the people like us tonight who are a part of the story. How? Because this Great Commission was set in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and we're not in the Middle East, and we're 2,000 years later. And guess what? The Great Commission ripples up to this shore tonight as we hear these words, as Jesus has sent his people, and lo and behold, it bumps into us tonight. And so, those are the three groups of people that the passage talks about. And there's kind of the three ways we're going to organize the talk tonight. For the next 30 minutes, we're going to look at story, mission, and missionaries. And the first is this every one of us. All of us. There is a story, a narrative, a way you piece together the data of your life that drives your life, that that animates, that moves you, that motivates you uh, towards something. All of us have that story going in our hearts. It's kind of the thing that we want to most come true. It's the thing that gets us up out of bed in the morning. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of what our story is. But you notice on your sheet I put story slash love because this always gets into what I love is kind of the story I want to come true, right? What I love shows up in my dreams a lot, right? But, but what I love always pans out into what life I'm aiming at, what vision of the good life I want to get at. And that's – so these stories drive our lives, and there is a, actually one of the, I think one of the people who nailed this on the head the closest, was actually an atheist. He's a young philosopher about my age who died a few years ago. His name's David Foster Wallace. Anyone heard his sermon, uh, this is, or his uh, commencement address at Kenyon College, This Is Water? Phenomenal. Recommend you go look at it tonight. The guy hit it on the head with something that you wouldn't think would make sense to him, but he saw it, and he got it. And he said this, and pardon the long quote, but it's well worth it. He said this, He's talking about these loves that animate our lives, these things we have to have, these stories we live by. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into the real meaning of life, then they will never you'll never have enough money. You'll never feel you have enough. This it's the truth. You worship your body or beauty or sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before you ever really die. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid you will need ever more power than others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out for what you are. Here's the thing. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're the default posture of our hearts. They're the kind of worship we just gradually slip into Without even knowing it, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Remember, verification principle? Seeing is believing? It's not that simple. And then he finishes this. He says, In the so called real world, won't discourage us at all as we slip into this kind of worship. Wanting power, never getting enough, and always freaking out when we don't have it. Wanting sexual allure, always feeling ugly. He says, the surrounding world won't stop us in this. It'll, it'll push us forward uh, in operating in our default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone, at the center of it all. Whoa. Lords of our skull-sized kingdoms, alone, at the center of it all. Always in poverty, because the very things we chase are the things that keep slipping out of our grasp, and so we chase all the harder. And so we're exhausted people who uh, continually are searching for new things to grab hold of. That's the default posture of our hearts. And did you catch what he said early on in his quote he said, worshiping God is the only thing you can worship, the only person you can worship, it won't devour you. We'll see why in just a few minutes as we push on into this. But look back at the passage. Why did I just read that quote? How does it fit with what the passage says? Well, where do you see those kind of worship things playing out? in the passage, because I said earlier, we usually think about this as an evangelism passage or a missions passage, but every passage in the Bible is aimed at our heart and showing Jesus beautiful to us. And so this does too, and it also shows us these other little things we worship. Where do we see it? Look at the chief priests and the elders. What would you say they worship? The chief priests and the elders in the passage. If you know a little bit about the Bible, you'll know what they worship. They had their theology right in their eyes. Everything had its little place Life worked well for them. They were at the center of authority. They were at the center of influence and power. Their word stood. They were the respected ones in the community. They got whatever they wanted. Life worked the way it was, thank you very much. This new king, no thanks. They worshipped power, and like David Foster Wallace said, worship power and you'll always feel weak. You'll always be threatened when anything threatens your power. And you'll grasp all the harder, and that's what they did here what did the guards worship we know we have a little clue i don't know everything i don't know everything but i know this matthew kind of goes out of his way to put an adjective on money they don't just get paid off to tell this fabricated story he says it's a sufficient or substantial sum of money i don't know what sufficient is to those guards enough to keep life as they want it going right so if it was 10 grand i don't know if it was 20 grand i don't know it doesn't matter all it meant it was sufficient to keep that dream going It was enough to keep the worship, the furnace of worship going. And so they they got paid off and they told the other story. How do we do it on this campus? How do I do it? What are these alternate stories that we live by, which what we're getting at is they cause us to turn the volume down on God's story? Because we want what we want. And if we want what we want, we're going to be threatened by this. So those other stories maybe are this, like I want to coast. That's what life is. That's the story we live by. It's a story of coasting. Path of least resistance is life. Always path of least resistance. We're bare minimum people. Thank you, Anna, for helping me see that about myself. This is me. This is all of us. These are the stories that we live by, and there's a lot of collateral damage from it. But here's the point of the passage. These stories, our commitment to these stories, what they do, they threaten the story, Jesus' story, his resurrection, what he's doing in the world, his agenda, his priorities, it threatens what we're doing. And so we have to do something about it. We either have to suppress it, Paul says in Romans 1. It's plain to us, but we have to, we have to dial it down, turn the volume down on it, so we can continue pursuing that. Or we have to all, all out reject it. And so they fabricate this story that somehow these disciples moved a several-ton rock and got Jesus out. Maybe you've heard the G.K. Chesterton quote where he said, when a man stops believing in God, it's not that he believes in nothing. He believes in anything at that point." There's no more anchor. There's no more compass rose. You believe anything. And this is evidence of that. The chief priests, the elders of all people. This is like the Pope. It's like the Tim Keller of Jerusalem. They're the ones who don't get it. They're the ones who are bowing up their chest, threatened by this story because it threatens what they love. And so I've got to start asking these questions because I see myself in this passage. Do you see yourself in the chief priests and the elders too? The places we hang up, the do not disturb sign on our hearts and the places of our lives? Lip service to Jesus, but please politely stay back. This is mine. This is my place. This is my pursuit. This is my goal. This is my love. It's better if you stay the way. And so... Uh, How do you, if if it's hard for you to notice the places you tend to do that, where are the places that you tend to turn down the volume on God's story? You just, you want to tune it out. You don't want to listen to it anymore. You stop going to certain people, certain places, because you're always confronted with it. You stop reading certain books, you drift away. Those are the places we're kind of drifting into another story and are putting the do not disturb sign on our hearts. So, to sum up kind of the, the reactions that we see in the passage, one is resistance, and resistance comes up when another story or another love threatens our current story or current love. And then you get the honest doubt, like this hesitance. The word that they use there for doubt, it's kind of like a reluctance, a hesitance. Uh, you sure about this? Let me poke you and see if you're real, like Thomas did. Side note, sometimes it's it could be easy to say, the Christians had a death blow, their king got crucified, they needed to invent a story to kind of keep this ball rolling into the future to build the church, so they made up the story about the resurrection. But my question is, if they did that, why do they keep including all of these embarrassing details that undercut themselves? Because Matthew goes out of his way to say, hey, before you think this is a clean, sanitized laboratory story, some of the apostles, some of the disciples doubted Looking at Jesus like the light I'm looking at right here kind of light and glory. When they're looking at him, and they're still. And so you say, what is doubt? Doubt is where two stories, there's friction between them. Because you're kind of lost in the middle of two stories, and you don't know which story to use to make sense of the other thing. And so we experience it as confusion. We experience it as doubt. And we tend to trust our doubts more than we trust what God is saying. We don't doubt our doubts the way we probably should. Doubts kind of becomes the inerrant um, truth-teller in our lives instead of the Lord. And so that's what that's what honest doubt is uh, that, that shows up in the passage. And then the worship is the other one. We see Jesus for who he is, and we want him. We love him. We see him as beautiful. So beautiful that we'll ditch wherever we're on. When we get those glimpses of him, so beautiful it pulls us away from what else we're on. What's the difference in the chief priest and the other people? We said there's a resistance, there's a kind of an honest doubt and belief, and then there's worship. The difference is what's precious to them, what's valuable, what they're worshiping. The David Foster Wallace quote, that's what's different between the two groups, and that's what shapes their response about whether they spread this story or whether they silence the story. Uh, That's the difference uh, that's in their hearts. This kind of pushes us into, into the second point. We talked about kind of these other competitor stories that pull us away from the true story. And so that means Jesus does a lot of talking about discipleship. And this is kind of where we weave back into maybe more familiar things you've heard on the Great Commission before. Discipleship or evangelism and that kind of stuff. Because the reason we had to start where we did a few minutes ago is because you have to understand the, this story doesn't go out into blank slates. We've got drawing all over our hearts. And so there's going to be kind of a little wrestle, a little rub when this story comes to us. And so that's what point number two is, that discipleship. It's the process of trading one story for another story. Here's the key part, one piece at a time, slow process. Because did you catch how everything Jesus mentioned here is a process? Even in the Greek, when he says, go therefore and make all disciples, even that's a process where It's literally saying, as you go. As you're going out into the world, make disciples. It's, it's not something just that you do. It's who you are now. You're a disciple maker. You're a multiplier. You're someone who helps others and lets them help you exchange pieces of our story and saying, I've been living by another, I've been living by another love here. And I need help recalibrating, recentering back to Jesus. And all these other process things. Making disciples. How long does that take? probably a lifetime. The Bible seems to presume that. That's why I have all of these letters addressed to kids and old people, all the way through. Making a disciple takes a lifetime. And so that's a lifetime process. Learning to observe, it's a lifetime process. When he says that in verse 20, and then teaching them to observe in verse uh, 20 as well. Lifetime process, the learning process. It's the learning curve, it's full of confusion, it's full of two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. That's the kind of process Jesus is sending out his church into the world. And you can think about it like this. Uh, I don't even remember when this was. maybe 2004 or 2006. There was that gigantic um, Boxing Day tsunami in uh, Sri Lanka and uh, some parts of Indonesia. There was an earthquake. One of the strongest, most powerful earthquakes ever recorded on the Richter scale happened deep, 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 deep in the ocean as these two gigantic plates were shifting apart. And the, the danger of that was not the earthquake. The danger of that was that it displaced so much water that this gigantic force, hundreds of miles an hour, like they said like something like a hundred times more powerful than the Hiroshima uh, nuclear blast. This kind of force is radiating out from that epicenter. And on the near shores, it wiped everything out. The... the It it cleansed it in a sense. Beaches actually looked kind of clean because all of the hotels, everything there was just wiped away. And on the more distant shores, like the coast of India, a couple hundred more miles away, less damage. And the further you got from that epicenter, it's kind of ripples coming up. But think about Jesus' resurrection, his kingship, his story. Think about that as an epicenter. This massive earthquake that changed everything about reality, changed everything about history, about the world. And from that epicenter, It radiates out into our lives, and there's near shores, and there's distant shores. And discipleship covers kind of this process of of knocking down and building up, pushing over, and renewing. It covers both the near and the far shores as those ripples wash up shore. But it's grace. It's renewal. It's restoration. And so these little ripples, the gospel is kind of the tide of Jesus continually washing over us. Little ripples, big crashes, and so maybe you have times in your story where you've had huge crashes. That big wave comes and it wipes stuff out. Maybe you got converted and you immediately knew the relationship I'm in. It, it grieves Jesus. It grieves the Spirit because of what I'm doing. This has to end. And so you back away and that's like catastrophic damage in your life. Or you say, I've got to fess up. I've got to come clean about something I've done. A big wave, a near shore. But When we're 80 years old, there's still going to be ripples coming up into our lives, probably further distant shores, where it's harder to recognize his story kind of wrestling with ours and recentering us on him, pulling us back to his love. But there will be those places where his story comes in like the little ripple and moves it around. And so, discipleship is kind of like being there as the waves come in. So, what are the implications for us? Like, nitty gritty. Because discipleship's a big word. If you've been around to a lot of other ministries or a lot of other churches as you grew up, it's probably a word you've been hearing your whole life. What does this have to do with what, kind of how we experience this kind of stuff? First, we can say this. It is helpful to have some structure to discipleship. Because Jesus is saying all of these processes. Make disciples. Teach them to observe everything uh, that I've commanded you. However, it's not as simple as put someone in a program. Make someone memorize some Bible verses. And it's not as simple as having some structure where someone who's arrived trains someone who hasn't arrived because nobody ever arrives. Jesus arrived. And you arrive only in case, only if we are connected to Jesus. And so that's also not something that's particularly helpful. But here's what is helpful, I think. If all of these are lifelong processes, all of these things Jesus says that disciple-making is, it's all a lifelong process, doesn't it presume that we've got to know people, and people have to know us, if we're going to kind of get in the trenches and help each other see the places, our blind spots, help each other see the places where we're not living, we're not animated by Jesus's love for us, we're not animated by the gospel, by some other sort. And so if we're going to help people become disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, it would, it would stand to reason that we have to know them. So, and, because it's a, this ongoing process of these little tides and ripples uh, hitting the shore. This does not sound very conventional. It sounds backwards, but it's not. I have a professor at CINRE that said, Instead of evangelizing non-Christians and discipling Christians, we need to disciple non-Christians. Those far uh, from faith in Jesus. And we need to evangelize those near to Jesus. And here's what he meant by that. The gospel is not something for outsiders. It's something for the whole world because it's good news. It's that breaking news on the bottom that changes everything. The gospel's for everybody. We never graduate beyond it. Our discipleship programs never say, okay, chapter two, now that you've heard that, now you move past Jesus and let's get down to some techniques. It's always Jesus. It's always him. Always grace. Always faith. But, he says, so, so evangelism's for everybody. And we need to be reminding each other of that. We've got to be talking about the basics of the gospel with each other and finding creative, agile ways to kind of come in each other's side doors where we're not expecting and say, Brother, this is better news than you're thinking right now. You seem dejected. You seem exhausted. You seem weary. You seem discouraged. Listen again. I'll try to tweak it. I'll try to find a way to get through to you in the midst of the doubt discouragement. This is good news. That's what it looks like for Christians to evangelize each other, to tell the good news to each other. But he also said we disciple those outside, those far. Here's what he means. It happened to me. Um, Sid used to say a lot to you guys, belonging before believing. That's what it means to disciple those outside. It's to let them try on the clothes of Christianity before they walk out of the store, in a sense. How does this fit? How does it feel when you walk around? Imagine life with a king like this. Imagine life without the burden, the back-breaking burden of all of your past. And, and, and the recognition that your future is probably not going to be much better. Imagine that. Uh, Dr. Leonard, my professor, said this. He said, "By using uh, how do we disciple those outside?" He said, "By using every circumstance, every question in their lives as a window into what it means to follow Christ." This is the everyday stuff that comes up over uh, getting lunch in Corbett or something. We use every question, every circumstance in their lives with everybody, not just not just those outside, but insiders as well as a window into what it means to follow Jesus. And we change the focus of our conversations from how do I get to heaven when I die to how does, how does Jesus bring heaven down to earth uh, to bring uh, new life now uh, and later. And, and I told you earlier that this happened to me. I was converted my last year um, as an undergrad in my fraternity and my, my, my buddy Jason. Uh, we would go out to this place called Moe's Burrito Joint I remember almost all of our conversations at Moe's. Jason didn't know I wasn't a Christian because I thought I was. Uh, I was raised in the church. I just felt feeling um, completely hollow and distant from God all the time as normal. Um, But Jason would, would go out to me. He never treated me as a receptacle to jam an agenda down. He honored me. He knew my story. He knew how to connect God's story to my story. He knew how to reorient me. And I gradually came to the conclusion, I say I know God, and Jason says he knows God. But apparently it's two different gods, because the one I know isn't at all like the one he knows. The one I know uh, seems to be dead, seems to be distant, seems to be deaf, uh, seems to be clumsy. But the one he knows is agile, like a football player can get around, meet him wherever he is, Always meet him where he is, quick in his step. Always beautiful, always sophisticated. His words always hit the mark. That kind of God who gets what life was like in Jason's skin. And he talked about his struggles. He talked about his doubts. He talked about the whole gamut of it. And he was shocked to hear that a couple of months later, Jesus gave me eyes to see him for who he really is. And I inescapably wanted to. to wanted more and more and more and more of him. I have to have him. He said, I didn't even know. But what was Jason doing with me? He was discipling me all along. He was making a disciple. He just didn't have the inconvenience of trying to strategize and think about what he was doing. And so it actually came off really normal, It was never really weird. But (laughs) isn't that a great picture of a normal way to love people? Because this is what Jesus said. You remember the Genesis sermons? from way back in August or September, what was God's original purpose for his people? To fill the earth, to be fruitful, to fill the earth with God's glory, to reflect him to the world. You are blessed to be a blessing. You are not blessed to be blessed. We are blessed for another purpose. We're blessed to be a blessing to the nations. This is the last point where we talk about missionaries. People who are on mission, nomads, people who are always on the move, going somewhere, whether it's across the hall, whether when you're married it's across the kitchen, to talk to uh, a spouse who's angry with you or you're angry with them, or a confused spouse or a kid one day. We're people on the go. We're moving out with the gospel. And so uh, this is the, be a, be, you're blessed to be a blessing. Here's the point. We are to be rivers of God's grace, not reservoirs. You are a river to water the people downstream from you. If you have been made alive in in Jesus, don't think that him saying you're forgiven is the end of the matter. That's step one. He forgave us to live with him forever and he forgave us to be a blessing to the whole world. So that like we said last week, when the world sees you, the lines are a little bit more blurred between you and him. Uh, and they see you and they want him the way I saw Jason and wanted God for that. And so we're rivers, we're not reservoirs. We're not to collect. Because when it collects, it gets stagnant like a pond that never has an outlet to it. We're to be rivers. There should be a drainage a drainage shelf on the other end of our pond that's just watering the people downstream. Less people starve. Uh, less people go weary downstream from us and our relationships. The last thing I'll say is this and give you an illustration for it. That I think kind of wraps up this passage really well. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. That's what the devil promised him earlier, remember? Jesus did it the hard way. He died for his people. He laid down his life for you. Uh, And so now he comes rightfully with all authority on heaven and earth. He says, I will be with you for this mission. It's not a Hallmark card. Behold, I will be with you until the end of the ages. It's I will be with you to the end of the ages because of the kind of mission I'm sending you on. You have to have, I have to be there. Because his work is what matters uh, more than our work. We get to work with him uh, in the Great Commission. We close with this story. When I was a kid, every Saturday morning at about, well, about the time the sun came up, my dad would get all of us out of bed and we would have to go do yard work. And when I was young enough to not resent that, I actually like sprang up out of bed and I would go get my little um, plastic lawnmower that blew bubbles. I saw one of these <laughs> in the store the other day. that were like this big. I remember it being like that big and having taken gas, but it didn't. <laughs> but what I would do, my Saturday morning ritual with my dad was uh, he would walk in front of me with his real lawnmower and I would walk behind him in his little path of freshly cut grass with my little plastic bubbly lawnmower. And I, I swear to you, I, Until I was probably like eight or nine, I would have bet you all of my money that I was the one cutting that grass. Because I remember seeing tall grass in front of where I was going and short grass behind me. And I'm like, this is awesome. I'll mow the lawn forever. When I was 15, I clued in on my dad that I had to hire someone to do the lawn. But that was like so exciting to me to see the tall grass there and the short grass behind me. Why did the grass get cut? Was it because I'm out there with my little bubble lawn mower, walking three (laughs) steps behind my dad? Or was it because my dad, who had the equipment to do what he asked me to do, was three steps in front of me, cutting the grass? So why did he ask me to come out there with him? I was like a six-year-old. Why get a six-year-old out of bed to go mow the grass with dad? Because for my dad, It was more about me sharing in his work, sharing and getting to be with him while he did his work, than it was about trying to get a task done. Jesus doesn't need anybody's help gathering his people to himself. But he wants us. He gives you authority. He gives you power. He gives you grace. He gives you strength to walk three steps behind him. And so when you see cut grass, when you see fruitfulness coming on your friends or in your own life, or you see people saying, I want the Jesus you see, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit to say in this passage, go out into all the world because we're three steps upon you. And we're three steps behind you. And all of our resources are with right. you. That's what the Great Commission's about. It's a way of life. It's not something we do. It's a way of life. It's who we are now. Um, let's pray that we will both be recipients of this commission Hearing the gospel as we need it, but also participants in it. Lord Jesus, uh, we do thank you that uh, you are the Lamb who is slain. You are the one who gave up all that you had uh, so that we might gain all that you had. Um, and so we thank you for that. Father, I pray for um, I pray for everyone tonight that you would remind us that we are you call us to be rivers the way you are a river. You did not hoard your grace. You did not hoard your kindness, but you spilled it over the world. You poured yourself out. We want to be people who splash the water of grace on others. Forgive us for being stagnant reservoirs. Teach us to dig ditches to water people around us, that they might see you as you are as well. We ask this in your name because we really do need you to do this for us.